If you would, remain standing and take out your Bibles. We're going to read the remainder of chapter 1. Just two verses. I gave myself the light assignment this morning. Uh, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we know the power of your word in order to be able to, um, Lord, cut right to the heart of the matter where it needs to be. And so we pray this morning that as we study your word, that it would have that effect upon us. Bless the teaching of your word in spite of your servant, Lord. And we ask this in Christ's name and everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. Uh, So before I get into the study, I'm going to just give you a little heads up what the uh, God's Man's Boot Camp is. Uh, It's a nine-week study that goes into what it means to be a man and a man of God today, and especially in our culture today. It's a nine-week study to look at what God's Word says about that. And there must be a deep commitment to study, uh, to scripture memorization, and team building and prayer. So fellas, if that's something you're interested in, there's a sign-up sheet out in the, in the foyer. Uh, sign up, and uh, we're gonna get started in February and uh, go through uh, some, pretty, some pretty intense stuff, but some really good stuff. And so I'm hoping that you'll join up with me as we go through it together. All right, so here we are, book of First Thessalonians, and we started into it this last week and uh, brought out a few points about it, a couple of things that we want to bring back as far as remembering, uh, first of all, that this church was a church that was established by Paul in Thessalonica, uh, a, a seaport town over uh, on the... Greece side of the GNC and uh, and that they had started it there and that Paul was concerned about their welfare because of the fact that he only was able to spend a short period of time with them, uh, about three weeks, some say at least three Sabbaths that we know. So it could be as much as four weeks or five weeks, depending upon when when he landed and when he took off from there. So at the most, you know, five weeks that he spent with them. And the fact is, is that in that short period of time that he had with them, that he saw fit, he thought it was a good idea to give to them some uh, doctrines that would necessarily be uh, reserved for people as they become mature in in the Lord rather than as babes in the Lord. But yet, Paul uh, just went right ahead and dove right into it, and we're going to be looking at that as we go through our section today, and also uh, and as we finish up this book and go into 2 Thessalonians as well. Um, we see here at the beginning of the book that it was written by Paul, Silvanus, also known as Silas and Timothy, uh, and that uh, they were writing the letter to the Thessalonians, 
after Paul had sent Timothy back to them to find out how they were doing because of the fact that he was concerned that from the persecution that they were receiving uh, for converting, uh, becoming Christians, that their faith might not have remained strong and that they would have abandoned their faith. So he sent Timothy back to check on him. And when he did, Timothy came back with this very great report about the condition of the church there. So Paul, Timothy and Silas, they, they're writing this letter together. They're sending it to them. It's a letter of commendation for what's been taking place, how they have been faithful to keep the faith and to continue to serve the Lord and to pursue the Lord. And uh, so this is why uh, they're writing the letter to them, to encourage them and to strengthen them. He also said here that they gave thanks for, for them always, uh, making mention of them in their prayers. So Paul and Silas and Timothy spent time together praying for the church in Thessalonica. Um, and there were certain things that they gave uh, thanks for as they were praying for them as well, as we see in verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God, uh, our God and Father. And so these were three things, three characteristics that Paul was giving thanks to the Lord for that they, they had a, uh, without ceasing in their work of faith, that they were continuing on and not holding back. And then that labor of love and, and patience of hope. And uh, the letter really speaks so much of that whole idea of patience of hope, hope that they had, that Paul was <clears throat> going to give them reassurance in. You know, it's not that they didn't struggle, it's just that you could see that was there, that was a part of who they were. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy would give thanks often to the Lord for this church. And, you know, I can honestly say uh, that throughout my walk with the Lord, I've found myself in different places like that where uh, remembering those that I know, giving thanks to the Lord for what's going on in their life. And sometimes uh, just amazed at what God has done and, and continuing to do. I had a friend of mine many, many, many years ago uh, that the Lord gave me opportunity to disciple. And I only, I only got to discipling for about six, seven months. It didn't seem like it was very long at all, but uh, he had approached me and said that he would like that. And so I said, that would be great. But uh, after about six months, I moved and went down to Bible school. And uh, I really didn't have that close connection with him any longer like I once had. It, we didn't have the means of communication that we have today. Uh, it still cost money to call long distance. And so you didn't do it as often as you do now where you just pick up the phone and call whoever it is, wherever they are kind of thing. But how much joy it brought to my heart to hear of, of the testimony of what was going on in his life years later and, and how he was continuing on in that walk of faith. And he had gone from a brother who had some very severe issues in his life that I was able to be able to share the word with him. The word of God touched his heart. The Holy Spirit strengthened him. And the next time, and it had been several years since I'd heard about him, he was serving as an elder in a church. 
And what a blessing it was to my heart to hear what the Lord was doing in him. And so I can, I can relate to Paul and Silas and Timothy as they're hearing of what's going on with the church there in Thessalonica. And also too, I think we can in, uh, in our lives too with others that are in our life as well. And so then uh, by way of introduction, we'll read through verse five uh, to get into our text today. It says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And so we, we talked about that, that the gospel came not only in word only, it wasn't that it was just preached to them, but more than that, the gospel was lived out before them. Not, there, there can't be enough said about the importance in our own walks, that it's not just that we know the scripture and that we can even quote the scripture, but are we living the scripture? That's what's important because it doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth if it's not backed up with the actions of your life. If you're, you're saying that, that you love God and that God loves you, and that there's a change that's taken place in your life, then it should be evident to all. And we're going to see here in Macedonia, around Thessalonica, the word had gone out because of the life that they had lived. They could see it. But Paul is pointing to the fact that where they learned that, where they got that from was them, from Paul and Titus and, uh, uh, excuse me, Timothy and Silas. That's where they learned it. They got the word from Paul, they saw it lived out before them, and then they began to, to you know, copy that, if you will. It's, it's okay when you see someone that's living for the Lord and they have characteristics in their life that are godly and reflect godliness to desire those kind of godly characteristics in your own life. Because you've seen it, it's been exemplified, and you say, this is what I want to be. I've shared with you time and time again, but there's enough of you that have not heard all my stories yet that I can repeat it and the rest of you can go to sleep if you've heard it. But when I was in Bible school, I was blessed uh, to have one of the instructors that Pastor Chuck Smith had sat under. And he was a tremendous man of God. He was about 85, I think, or yeah, I think he was around 85. Uh, when, it, when I had him as my instructor. But he made a huge impression on me for his knowledge of the word, his memorization of the word, his love for his wife, and the love for the Lord. I saw those characteristics and I just thought, man, that's, that's it. That's what I want to be. I want to be like that. As I watched a man who took his Bible and his notebook and he put it up on the podium and he began to teach to us and quoted whole chapters of, of scripture and never even opened his book or his notes. Never opened the Bible, never opened the notes, but he could quote all the scripture word for word as he'd tell us where to turn to and we'd look at it. And each, each, each teaching session, when we would gather together, his wife would always be with him. They'd been married for, uh, 63 years, I think, at that time. So he must have been about 85. But anyways, when we'd start the class, he would have all the guys, uh, have his wife stand up and have all the guys look over there and say, gentlemen, I want to introduce you to my bride. 
And it wasn't because he was absent-minded. He was making a point. Even though we, he knew that we all knew who she was, but he was going to make sure that we understood how important she was to him to give her that kind of notoriety. And he just reeked of the Holy Spirit. And I just admired him so much. And that's what I wanted to be in my life. And the Lord made sure that I understood that after I had walked with him for 63 years, then I would probably be like Dr. Van Cleve too. It's good to have those that we look to that lead us in a way toward godliness and a deeper relationship with the Lord that challenge us. You know, when I see someone who is older and more mature in the Lord than I am, it challenges me to want to step up further than what I am. And it doesn't matter where it's at. And I don't, I don't know that you ever get past that point in your life. I guess, I guess when you get to be 90-something year old, maybe it does, but I, I, just another quick story. Uh, my uncle, who married my aunt, so you understand how my relationship with him became my uncle, but he was a retired pastor. And I used to love being with him. He loved to listen to me talk about the Word of God. And I'm thinking to myself, he's probably had more hours in his sleep thinking about Jesus than I've had talking about Jesus, but yet he wants to hear me talk about the Bible. And it just showed me the openness of his heart and his life that even at his age, he wasn't through. He wasn't through growing. And we had great conversations about the scriptures and about the Lord and how I appreciated him so much for who he was in the Lord. We need people like that in our lives. We need to have people that we can count on to be those that would be examples and instructors, teachers, those that we would want to emulate just like the Thessalonians wanted to with Paul, Timothy, and Silas. This is what was happening here, not only in word, but also an example, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is, the, this is the, one of the main parts of this whole thing. And that is that none of this is worth anything or can be done truly without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's what we have to look to and to cling on to and to trust in, that God and his Holy Spirit will work in us and through us. The gospel changed, caused the changes in their lives, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit that accomplished it all. The, uh, for he said to them, for our gospel did not come in word only, but in that power, not just in the matter of mere words. In modern culture, there is an overflow of information or entertainment that often only amounts to mere words. Yet the gospel is more than words. It is also, it also has power as well. <clears throat> and so as examples they were to them, as they began to followers in verse six, he says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So 
they, they became followers of the Lord as they saw their lives and as they heard the word and the Holy Spirit came upon them. They began to be those that were following after the Lord and after Paul, Silas, and Timothy as well. They stopped following other things, but followed after Paul and the Lord. Paul says that it is a good thing for the Thess Thessalonians to follow him and he wasn't shy about saying, follow me, because he knew where he was going. This shows that Paul's message included an element of personal discipleship. There was a sense in which Paul personally led these Thessalonian Christians in their spiritual life. They could see his life and were invited to learn from his example. So Paul repeated this time, excuse me, this theme, uh, several times. Got my imes and eames mixed up there. Um, he says in Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Also in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And here we are told that they had done this in much affliction, having received the word in much affliction. The Jews among them must have felt the hatred of their unbelieving brothers in the flesh, who, as has been pointed out, were especially antagonistic to the gospel in that city. You remember we talked about that last week, how it was that after Paul had preached the gospel, they were actually run out of town by non-believing Jews who tried to have them killed. And so they fled there. They left there and they went down to Philippi. Or no, excuse me. Did I get it backwards again? They went to Philippi and then went down to Thessalonica. But they left from there after they had been run out. And the, the, these guys ended up following them as they went down, the, the non-believing Jews. And so they left behind, of course, a group of people who were very antagonistic towards the gospel and toward the world, the word. The Gentile converts must have had to swim against the swift current of paganism that flowed like a torrent through the conduit of commercial Thessalonica. Remember, we talked about this is a great commercial center. And within that, you would have had a lot of opportunities for pagan worship. Uh, and, and just like all the other Roman Empire, first influenced by the Greeks, then by the Romans, you had it, it was prevalent wherever you went. That's where it was. Those were the accepted religions. Judaism, after being conquered by the Greeks and then the Romans, became a recognized religion within the governmental system. But Christianity had not received that. And because of that, there was tremendous uh, animosity towards those who were Christians. So it didn't matter if you were Greek or you know Gentile or Jew, you still had this tremendous back pressure if you decided to follow after Christ. And the city's chief men's wives, which there were several who had uh, come to faith, uh, had to go home to unbelieving husbands who would have would not have appreciated their newly sensitized consciences. Because within the Greco-Roman culture, just about anything went. It didn't matter what it was. 
If you think that our culture is adapted at anything goes kind of attitude, uh, believe me, we're just starting to come up to their level. We're re reaching their level, but their level was such that anything, it didn't matter what it was, sexually, you know, spiritually, you know, I mean, the list can go on and on, but it, it was horrible at that time. And so wives who came to faith in Christ and then they saw that, oh, hey, no, it's not right that we're doing these things. They're immoral. They're wrong. And, you know, the, the thing of it is there were no laws against it except for the law of the Holy Spirit in the heart that would say, hey, this is not acceptable behavior. You know, you, you can't live like that. And as a matter of fact, this is what they're being commended for is the fact that they've abandoned those behaviors. They've left them. And so Paul is saying, hey, this is great. You guys, you know, you have abandoned those behaviors. So, but with that comes opposition from others who don't agree with you. So I'm sure when it comes to yourselves and myself, then we can truly identify with that in the world that we live in today. As it becomes harder and harder to take a biblical stand on the things that are going on within our culture. And if you, if you agree with scripture and don't agree with culture, they automatically will name you such things as bigot, racist, homophobe. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of what you are if you believe scripture over what the culture says today. And so we can identify with the persecution that they were receiving to some degree, but you know, and I, I could be wrong. I'm not saying thus say it the Lord because I don't want you to stone me if I'm wrong, but uh, I, I would not be surprised at all that in, a, in our future, we find that life is gonna get a whole lot harder being a Christian than it would be if you were not. If you stand firm upon the word of God and the teachings of what the word says. You know, this is one of the, one of the things that uh, I had shared at New Year's and um, even last week as well. Uh, you know, I really feel that the Lord would have us to prepare ourselves for what's ahead. And the preparing of ourselves is to know God's word, know what we believe and why we believe it, and to be able to stand upon that in the face of any opposition that might come our way. Not only that, but that the Lord would have us to take these truths out into a Christ-rejecting world. And the days of people coming to the church just because has really gone by. It's a gone-by era. It used to be that when the doors were open, people would just kind of stumble in, you know, because they came across it. Nowadays, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, even though we've had signs out front, we've got a huge sign on the front of the building here, how many people I've talked to, they say, oh, there's a church there? Well, it could be because we look like we're an industrial building, but we've tried to make it as obvious as possible. Yes, we are a church. The thing that is, is people's hearts and eyes are not open to these things anymore, and we must take it to them. We have to share with them the love of Christ and the desire that God has to have fellowship with them and that there are other people who, who want to have fellowship with them that have fellowship with God and desire that they would be a part of that. And we have to get out there and we have to tell them and especially in the light of the culture that we live in today. 
I'm like anybody else. I think you get, um, you know, you've done things for this, the same way for a long time, and so you continue to do that, thinking that that's the way that we need to do it. But I'm, uh, I'm an old guy, and it takes me a while to get it. But I think I got it. I think we have to do something different. I think we, and believe me, I'm not going to do dog and pony shows. I'm not going to do smoke machines and lights and skinny jeans and all those kind of things to try to bring people in because that's not, I think, what the Lord wants. I think the Lord wants us to just give the word of God by the spirit of God and the truth of God and let it have a, an effect upon people's hearts and lives. But it's up to us to go out there and to tell this message to the people and then invite them to come and to learn more. It's not, it really is not to invite people to church. It's to invite them to Christ. And then to invite them to come where there are others who are learning more about Christ to come and learn more about who Jesus is. That's what the church is supposed to be about. Here we see in this verse 6, it says that yet in spite of trials without the Thessalonian believers possessed joy within. It was the joy of sins forgiven. You know, this is the, uh, as, a, as a believer walking with the Lord, I think this is one of the difficult things in life to do, and that is to have the trials from without, but yet to maintain the joy within, and that that becomes apparent. Paul could see within the Thessalonians that they were going through tremendous trials, but yet they still had this incredible joy in the Lord. And certainly they are not alone. There are so many people in other parts of the world that in order to become a believer, they have to be willing to physically put their life in jeopardy. But even doing that, they have incredible joy because they know their sins are forgiven. And if they die, that they will have eternal life with God. Something that all of us, whether under persecution or not, one day will meet. And for those of us who don't have the severe persecution, it's kind of really silly for us not to have joy in the midst of our trials, isn't it? As the word says, that we have not suffered unto bloodshed yet. But yet God gives us his joy in the midst of it all, no matter what it is. And, and a lot of times it's, it's how, we, how we look at it. You know, when things are going on in my life, if I'm, if I'm becoming sorrowful nine times out of ten, it's because I'm looking within me. Oh, poor woe is me. My motorcycles broke down again. My life is going to end, I know for sure. You know, I mean, that's kind of dramatic and extreme. But yet, I, I can tell you, you're probably like me. I've had times in my life that if, after I look back at it a little bit, I go, how stupid was that? That I was upset over that. When in the scope of eternity, it meant absolutely nothing except for how I react to the trials in my life. That's what has eternal bearing, not the trial itself. It's how I react to it. What do I do when there's all this tremendous pressure upon my life? Do I still have the joy of the Lord 
in my heart? We can. This is the thing. We can because the joy of the Lord is not dependent upon circumstances, but on the relationship that we have with God. And when I realize that everything that's going on in my life is filtered through his hands, so none of this has caught him by surprise, he knows exactly what he's doing, then I can rest and have peace and have joy in the midst of all of that. And I know you can because I have, even though I forget it sometimes and I find myself in that horrible cycle of, you know, poor woe is me, I can't believe this, I don't like this, oh God, get me out of this. And God says, no, I need you there because you haven't figured this part out yet. Have joy in the midst of your sorrow. Have joy in the midst of your difficulties. The interesting thing of that thought is that we think, well, if we experienced it once, we've got it nailed down, we don't need to do it again. So God, just give me a good life. Give me one that's filled with nothing but great things. I don't want any problems, don't want any issues. I don't want to have to deal with it. I've learned my lesson. I got joy. But it's a never-ending trial. It will come again. Because that joy sometimes seems to just slip right through our fingers like holding, uh, you know, a cup of water in your hand. You know, you might have some of it, but most of it's going to run out all the spots where it's got room to run out. And that's what happens, I think, too, when it comes to joy. But they, they, in the midst of severe trials, so much so, Paul was afraid that they were going to give it up. They were just going to say, nope, this being a Christian isn't really worth it. It's costing me too much. And so Paul, concerned about it, finds out that in the midst of all that, that they had that joy in the Lord. Oh, God, please give to us. Give to us that joy always in our hearts and our lives. Lord, that it might be seen by all around us that this would be the great testimony of our life. How different we should be as Christians in the world. I'm not talking about putting on a show. I'm not talking about fakeness. You know, just, oh, don't worry, be happy. What was it, Bobby Farron? I think it was. I had a, sign, a song that was like that many years ago that, you know, don't worry, be happy. Doesn't matter what's going on, just be happy. You know, that's, that's a bunch of poppycock. You know, let, let's face it. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're not going to you know, be drugged down by your trials at times. But we know what we can have, and that is the joy of the Lord, and we strive for that in our hearts and our lives, just as they had done. Um, the thing of it is, with them, they faced that affliction uh, from receiving the word, but they didn't just face it with a, fa a resigned fatalism to it. It was they knew that God was going to do something, and they faced it with joy of the Holy Spirit. So not long before coming to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas personally experienced that principle of having the joy of the Holy Spirit even in the presence of much affliction. When they sang in the Philippian jail, despite their chains and sufferings. I'm sure you guys remember that story. Um, Paul and Silas were arrested in Philippi for preaching the gospel. Thrown, uh, they were beaten and then thrown into prison, locked up. And, you know, I, I know I see sometimes these pictures where they have Paul and Silas inside a prison. And... Uh, 
they try to make it look as bad as possible, but it's nothing, I think, like what it really was. The chains were not comfortable, they were short, and it was difficult to be in there. And they'd been beaten to the point of bloodiness. And they got settled down, and the first thing they did is they started whining and crying. Oh, God, I thought we were supposed to be the ones going out with the gospel. How could you let this happen to us? How could it be that the God of the universe who has all power and all might would allow us to be put in prison like this and to boot everything else, beaten with rods, all this stuff, how could it be, God, that you would do that? No, they didn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, they began to sing songs of praise unto the Lord. Songs of praise, joy in the heart. You know, and, and isn't it, I don't know, it doesn't tell us that Paul had any kind of a vision what was going to happen, but we know by the story that what happened, as they began to praise God, the chains fell off, the doors opened up, and they could have just walked right out. The guards saw that this happened in the Roman culture. If you were a guard and the prisoners escaped, you had to serve their sentence. And if it was a death sentence, that meant you died. If it was a life sentence, you lived in prison for the rest of your life. The, the guard... The jailer, when he saw it, he saw that the doors were open. He took out his sword. He's ready to kill himself. And Paul says, wait, wait, don't do it. We're all here. And through that whole experience, not only the jailer, but his whole household came to faith in Jesus Christ. I bet you Paul was really glad they didn't whine and cry to the Lord because of all the great things that God had done. And so it is, too, in our own lives that that we need to have that same kind of, of view, that, that, time, that type of focus in our lives. That the trials that come in our lives, we have to look at them at what they, what they have for us. What potential do they have for God glorifying himself through us as we endure the trials of life? Because if you haven't figured it out yet, everybody has trials. Christian and none, doesn't matter. Although there are some that seem to never have it. Psalm 73, the psalmist wrote about them. He talked about the prosperity of the wicked and how they always seem to get away with everything. The psalmist declared, he said, I, I looked at their life. I saw how I'm doing everything right. I'm following after you, Lord. I'm obeying you, Lord. They're not. They got all these riches. Everything's going great for them. I th he said, my foot almost slipped. I almost said, forget it all. I'm just going to go ahead and be like them. He said, until I went into the house of the Lord and I saw their end. And then he realized that, that what he saw there really was, and I can put it this way, and that is that those people better enjoy what they got because that's the best they're going to get. When they get to the other side of eternity, they're not going to be happy at all. But yet the psalmist, as he continued to follow the Lord, was assured of eternal life with God. So much more precious than anything that could be gained in this world. It is interesting that Christians who have tribulations in their daily walks often seem to have a greater joy in the Lord than those who live uh, in more comfortable spiritual climates. A Christian's joy should be determined not by his circumstances, but by his relationship with Christ. And certainly this was true of the Thessalonians. Their, the source of their joy was the indwelling Holy Spirit. Verse 7, so 
that you became examples to all Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So the testimony of these Christians did uh, not burn brightly merely at home. It also shone abroad to other people in other parts of Macedonia, reaching even to Achaia, the neighboring province to the south. Having become imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy and their Lord, they in turn became the object of imitation by other believers. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he pointed to these Macedonians as a model. Uh, we see it in 2 Thessalonians 3.9, and also uh, they were as a model, and also of their sacrificial giving in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-8. He said there, moreover, brethren, in 2 Corinthians, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That would have been in Thessalonica. That in a great trial of affliction and abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberty. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, uh, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And so we urged Titus <clears throat> that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. The gift, the grace was giving. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing your, the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. So Paul points to the Macedonians, the Thessalonians, as an example of a church who had nothing, but yet they were generous and they gave to a fault. They not only were that, but they were, were such a, an example to the world uh, around them that others saw that there was a true change in their life and that, that they were to be copied as well as the apostles. He wrote that they had given money to help other believers even though they themselves were poor. And one of the most revealing evidences of a Christian's true spirituality is the way he manages his money. In this revealing test, the Thessalonians emerged as gold tried in the fire. In verse 8, for whom you, the word of the Lord, has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia but, and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. What a testimony that Paul gives to them here. He says that the word of God has sounded forth and that was a part of that good example that the Thessalonian Christians provided. It sounded forth means a loud ringing <clears throat> uh, sound as of a trumpet blast. The good work the Lord did among the Thessalonians became known all over the region and everyone talked about the changes. In a cosmopolitan trading center uh, like Thessalonica, 
the good news could sound forth in every place to all the earth. Because not only would it be right there, but then as the testimony would go out, guys would get on ships and they would begin to take stuff out. Then that word would go out from there. And then guys would come in, they'd receive that word again and go out again. And so it was a perfect, perfect scene, if you will, for the spreading of, of the word, of the power and the might, and the effects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has said here that, uh, that they were sounding forth the word so effectively that, that you are putting me out of business, he says. I'm not even having to say anything because it's so evident as to what God is doing in your life. And Paul pairs two ideas there. The word of the Lord that sounded forth and their faith toward God has gone out. Those two aspects are essential if a church will spread the gospel. First, they need to need a message to spread, and that message first needs to impact their own lives. Second, they need the faith to go out so that their faith toward God goes out into all the world. Clark, in his commentary, said, the mere preaching of the gospel has done much to convince the convert and convert sinners, but the lives of the sincere followers of Christ as illustrative of the truth of these doctrines have done much more. So there's the exhortation that is here that we see by example in them, and that is to receive the word, to live the word, and then take the word out. That's, that's the example. And, you know, to be honest with you, um, for a long time, the church did very well without all of the, the pomp, circumstance, settings, and, and programs of the church. Before there were those, there were just people like Paul going out, sharing the gospel, people like the Thessalonians receiving the gospel. And from there, they take that and they spread it around to other people. And as they did, the church grew. Unfortunately, it's like anything that man puts his hand to. Once he touches it, he usually corrupts it. And that's what's happened with the church. So much of it. You know, not that I think that we're perfect, but I know that we're going to stick really close to the Word of God because that's where we find the perfect and that we put that into practice. And as we do, then we're going to find that people's hearts and lives are going to be changed and strengthened and encouraged. And that's what we want to do, just as it was for them. That they did not, that Paul didn't even have to speak about them because of the fact their own lives were such that everyone saw it within them. Let that be the testimony of our lives as well. Let it be that, that when people think of us or talk about us, that what they talk about is the Lord in us the changes that have been made. In verse nine, he says, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He said, Paul says, this is what they're all talking about about you. Isn't it always nice when you hear something and somebody's talking about you, you know? Uh, it's amazing how uh, we wouldn't, prefer not to hear what people are saying about us, isn't it? Actually, I would love to hear what people say about me. 
perhaps it'll do constructive criticism uh, and, and to bring change in my life. Or maybe it'll bring encouragement because there's something in my life uh, that the Lord is doing that others can see, and that's what I want. Other people were telling Paul what had happened, and he had preached the gospel in Thessalonica. The events of his visit had become well known in that part of the world, not because Paul spread the word, but because the outspoken Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonians, excuse me, believers witnessed. Their boldness should challenge every true child of God. These believers had turned to God, the only true God, from idols. This strongly suggests that many of those believers had been pagan Gentiles. The Jews, of course, abhorred idolatry. Someone has observed that humans have the freedom to choose who their master will be, but they do not have the freedom to choose no master. Although there are many today who think that they have no master, but they do. You can choose, and you're going to choose one or the other. You're going to choose the devil, or you're going to choose the Lord, but you will serve somebody. One of the old uh, Dylan songs, uh, which I was a Dylan fan before I got saved. I was excited when he got saved. I loved his music, and I'm glad it made a whole lot more sense after he became a Christian than it did before. But nonetheless, he made this truth, and that was that you're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve the devil, or you're going to serve the Lord. But you're not going to serve nobody. And so many people today do not think that they are under the power, the authority, the influence of forces of darkness if they don't know Christ. But yet they are. They are. Some, um, the Thessalonians had chosen to serve the living and true God rather than God's creatures or satanic powers. The fact that God is a living person was precious to the Jews and to Paul. And this is the characteristic by which God is most often distinguished from so-called gods in the Old Testament. He is the only living God. All other gods are not alive and therefore not worthy objects of worship. God points it out in many of the uh, minor prophets that they were carving idols, uh, idols that had ears but could not hear, mouths but could not speak. And he was the true and living God. He could hear and he could speak. And here they are worshiping this dumb idol. And he makes him, uh, he, he, he tries to appeal to their reason. You know, you realize that that same chunk of wood that you built an idol, you also use it to cook your food. You take the parts of it that are not made into an idol, you burn it for heat for the food, but yet then you put it up on a shelf and you begin to worship it. How stupid is that? <laughs> well, uh, pretty dumb, to say the least. He is the only living God, and all other gods are not alive, and therefore he is the only one that is worthy of worship. And you may say to yourself, well, that's good, Pastor Bob. I haven't ever worshipped foreign gods. Well, let me ask you a question. How about the God of Bacchus? You know who the God of Bacchus was? He was the God of wine. God of drunkenness. You know that in our country, over 144,000 people die from excessive alcohol use in every U.S. year. 140,000 people. They were worried about COVID. Right? 
Alcohol kills more people than what COVID did. But yet, we're not closing down liquor stores. Matter of fact, they got to stay open during it all. Isn't that crazy? Bars, liquor stores, jute joints, whatever. How about Diana, the goddess of sex? Man, that's, that's one that huge, huge. And, and I, I wish I could say that there was some point in the mediocre history which I have studied it that it actually had a downturn. But it has not. Every year it becomes more and more and more people are indulging and many of them getting hooked on pornography. And the largest segment of that group is women that are viewing and getting hooked on pornography. That's crazy. I think that tells you about what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 when he said that one of the things that we would see as being that God has removed his hand off a nation and turned them over to their own debased mind is that very thing that women begin to desire women, which is noted first in that passage, which one commentator I know says that it, it gives us an idea of the depravity that the world is sunk into when women who are usually the stalwart, they're the ones that don't go down. I mean, every, every guy's got a greater propensity to that than any woman ever has. And, and they typically will use that. But when women get to that point, to where they are like that, where they're acting like men, that tells you that the depravity that a culture has come into a culture that our world has come into, a culture that, our, that the United States has come into, that that is one of the largest segments of pornography that is growing is with women. And then, of course, there's Plutus, the god of wealth. You know, there's an interesting thing I noted when Paul speaks of uh, in Romans when he talks about if it wasn't for the law, uh, I would not have known covetousness because the law says that thou shalt not covet. And I am always interested that Paul chose that one law out of all the laws to point out because that is like one of the most secretive laws that there is, right? I can make you think I'm not covetousness, covetous, but yet in my heart I can be as covetous as you can possibly be. And I think Paul had a tremendous struggle with that. That's my opinion. That's all. Okay, but when you read through Galatians, as we're going through Galatians on Wednesday night, you find that Paul makes boast of himself, what he was, not that he boasts in it, but that he tells us about who he was and what he was before he came to faith in Christ. And one of those, he says, I was better at it than all my contemporaries. And I think he coveted the high priest position. I do. I think that that was his goal, that was his mark, and he served that with a zeal to the point of the persecution of the church. Covetousness. Plutus, the god of wealth. Boy, how, how many people, you know, serve that god in the church? In 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 5, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
that he no longer should live the rest of his life, uh, the rest of his time, I'm sorry, in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in that same flood of dispensation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Come out from among them is what the scripture says that we are to do. Come out. And if we've been delivered by the power of God and his Holy Spirit, then we should walk in those things and not find ourselves walking back into them. It always breaks my heart when I see Christians going back into various habits and different disciplines in the world that are very worldly. Doesn't have to be ungodly near as much as it is worldly. And any time that you do that, you begin to compromise your walk and your faith with Christ. And it's like anything that is, if you keep compromising, eventually what will happen is you will fall. It, it's inevitable. Unless one turns and decides, no, I'm not gonna go that way of the world any longer. So whatever it is that we may be serving, and like I say, we may say to ourselves, I don't worship idols, <clears throat> but I would challenge you to really examine your heart and see if indeed you don't. And, and I just picked out, what was it, three or four there. There's actually uh, about 15 different gods that you might find that you worship if you'll go through the, the Greek and Roman gods and all the things they represent. Uh, and. Uh, you also, I would encourage you to do that too, because then you get a really good idea about the mindset and the culture of that time and what was acceptable to them in their time, you know? And so it's a good challenge. Okay, verse 10. And to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this church is turning, serving, and waiting. This was their witness to the world. And this needs to be the witness, our witness to the world as well, that we are turning away from sin, uh, that we're serving, serving one another, serving those that are out there in the world as well, and waiting, waiting, waiting for the Lord to come back. It's not one of those things that you sit on your duff and do nothing until he does. That's not what the encouragement is. That's not what the exhortation is. The exhortation is, and I explained this last week, the exhortation is to have that, that earnest expectation of the return of the Lord so that you will find yourself always wanting to serve God. You know, uh, Jehovah Witnesses have a doctrine, and I'm not telling you you need to believe this doctrine. I'm just using this as an example. They believe that if they are not serving the Lord on the day of Armageddon, then they will go into annihilation. Okay, that's why you see them out there pounding the streets and going door to door and all that all the time. Because they believe their very, their very eternity uh, depends on that. Now they all believe that they, there's no possible way that they can go to heaven because the roles have already been filled with the 144,000 that they believe are the faithful Jehovah Witnesses. But they, you know, after they filled those roles, then they de developed the doctrine of paradise earth. 
And that was, you don't have to leave here. You can stay here on paradise earth while all the 144,000 are up in heaven. All that's false doctrine. My point is this, they have an urgency that drives them to serve God. They do it out of fear. We have an urgency to serve God because the Lord's coming back, not out of fear, but out of love. Because of the fact that we desire that all would know about Jesus before he comes back. And because of that, we want to serve him. We want to tell others about Jesus Christ so that they do not have to face the wrath of God. Now, as believers, we don't have to worry about facing the wrath of God. This is one of the wonderful things about being a Christian is that because of the fact that we have embraced Christ as our Savior, we receive forgiveness of sins, we have no fear whatsoever of ever facing the wrath of God. God's wrath will be poured out upon Christ-rejecting individuals. That's where it's all going to be poured out on. From time to the end, the beginning of time to the end, those who have rejected the gospel and another subject matter don't have time to talk about it in any depth. But yes, the Old Testament saints believed that they would see eternity. They believed that they would be resurrected. They looked forward to the cross, the time when God would bring the Messiah in order to pay for the sins of the world. And then from there on the cross, we look back to the cross, knowing that our salvation is secured in Christ. We do not have to worry about seeing the wrath of God. Paul had given this to them as an exhortation to encourage them. They had begun to wonder, and we'll see as we go through these, this epistle in the next. They had thought that those who had died in Christ had missed the rapture and that they were, they were done. And so Paul straightens all that out for them. As a matter of fact, we'll find as we go through this book that in this chapter, verse 10, second chapter, verse 19, third chapter, verse 13, chapter four, verses 13 through 18 and 523, he closes each chapter with a reference to the return of the Lord. It's meant to be an encouragement and it's meant to be something that would cause us to desire to take the word of God out to others and to have great hope. And that's what this book was all about for them. This is what this letter was for, for hope. And so it should be in our lives too. And I, I think about it, and especially in today, uh, in the church today, that there are guys that I know that, uh, that absolutely refuse to teach on eschatology, the return of the Lord as if it's something that shouldn't be taught. But yet Paul says, I got a group of people that just came to faith. What I want to tell them about is Jesus coming back. But yet there's so, so many in the church today that are saying, oh no, we don't want to talk about that. It's too controversial. No, it's not controversial. The Bible declares it. We just need to simply state it. And then we need to live it. And we need to understand that this same message that Paul was giving them is for us too to encourage us to look up for our redemption is drawing near, to constantly be looking for the return of the Lord. I've told you guys before, every cloudy day really excites my heart because it says in Acts that he will return in the clouds just as he departed. 
Now, I know this, he doesn't have to wait for a cloudy day, he can bring his own cloud, and it doesn't, it's not a problem. But it sure makes me happy when I see one, because it makes me think of it. And as we're going through this, this short little book, I pray that the Lord will really, really solidify things within our hearts to the importance of having that hope of the return of the Lord. And also, as we have seen this week, in the, the being a witness, not just knowing the word, not just saying I'm a Christian, but actually living it out in our lives when people are not watching and that we're, will, that we're living that all the time in our life. And as we do, others will see us and they will talk about us and they will say that there's someone who loves Jesus. And that's what we want in our lives so that we can be a testimony, so that we can share the gospel, then we can bring others to come in and that they can learn the things of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this morning and I thank you for your word. As always, Lord, it's a, it's a great excitement uh, to just look at what you have to say, the challenges that you give us. Lord, not only the challenges, but also, Lord, the, the hope that we have in the truth of your word. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be known as Thessalonians, individuals that the testimony would go out all around the region around us about the fact that we'd given our life to Christ and that we are blessed for knowing him and that others can be blessed as well. Father, thank you for today, for your word. Continue to minister to our hearts as we go on from this day and uh, watch over us and keep us, I pray. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand, please? I, I really, I just pray that the Lord uh, will just really strengthen you and encourage you this week, that you will take time to spend time in God's word, that you will read it and not just to read the lines, but to take in the words to what God has to say. And I pray that his Holy Spirit would increase his knowledge in you, that you would understand what he has to say and how it applies. And, and that you desire, that you would have a desire, that I would have a desire to live that in our lives. Not just this week, but always. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And I pray this in Jesus' name.